All right, we are uh, going to continue our study through the book that we started last week. And I think everybody has uh, a handout that's got some of the quotes that I'll be referencing. Last week we looked at the introduction, and then this week we're going to start looking at uh, section one is the beauty of human experience. So uh, the first chapter in this section, which as I recall is five chapters, is on the dynamic heart. And it starts out talking about this idea that, like we talked about in the introduction, our human experience is complex. So there's a lot of things that are going on. He says you can go from thinking about eternal, amazing things about God to maybe wanting a shamrock shake at McDonald's the next minute. Like we can just be back and forth like that in our daily experience. We can go through amazing difficulties in one moment and then in the next moment we can struggle with I don't want to get up in the morning you know and just you know back and forth in the experiences of our lives and so uh, at first glance that might make us feel like I can't understand what's going on I can't ever grasp the way things are happening in my heart and life and so if that's the case how can I ever change anything how can I ever be pleasing to God in this so let me um, uh, Let's read this first quote here. The primary point of this chapter is human experience is three-dimensional. The human heart responds cognitively through rational processes based on knowledge and beliefs. We think about things based on what we know and what we believe. Okay? It also responds effectively through a framework of desires and emotions. What I want, what I'm feeling, those things coincide with what I know and are expressed in various ways. And then the third thing is, it also responds volitionally through a series of choices reflecting the willful commitments of the heart. What I know, what I desire, what I have purpose to do, all of these things coincide and then are expressed in what actually people see around me. These three aspects of the heart's response are all a part of how people were designed to worship God. So the first question I just want to talk about for a second is, would you agree that our hearts have responses that could be described as flowing out of our thinking, our desires, and our will or our choices? Do you think that that's an accurate description that he's giving us there about the way that we work, the way that we function? Okay. What might be some examples of this that might come to mind? Okay? Yeah, there's a desire or an affection or an interest in that, so spend a lot of time doing it. Yeah, I think later in the book he gets into how conscience relates to these things. Conscience would probably largely tie in with our thinking, I guess, <coughs> our knowledge, so, uh, but it definitely fits in there. And he's going to argue in a moment. These three things are not like compartments of us, because they're all interrelated. I'm going to draw a picture for you in a minute to illustrate that. But uh, what are some examples maybe of how our thinking plays out in our daily lives? Okay, good. How about the things that we've decided to do? You've made up your mind, I'm going to do a certain thing. Does that sometimes um, uh, 
is that sometimes in conflict or in uh, like is it possible for us to know something would be right and at one level desire to please God but I've made up my mind I'm going to do this other thing is that is that possible yeah I mean that's sin right so I think we'd agree, at least in general terms, his, his sketch here is accurate. So let me read you a little illustration here from the book. A man sits in a counseling room recounting a recent fight he had with his wife. He's an unhappy man generally, but he'd exploded on her with an anger that surprised them both. The words that poured from him in that wild-eyed frenzy can only be described as wicked. In the ferocity of the moment, he stormed out of the room, kicking things as he went. He even put a hole in one of the doors. The evening ended in his leaving the apartment and sitting at the bar for a few hours. As he relates all this to his counselor, he stares at his shoes. So what would be an initial response if you were the person trying to help this couple? What would be an initial response of something you might say, here's a problem we need to work on? What are possible problems that we could work on? Okay. All right. Um, I'll leave that there in case they need that later. Um, all right. So we've got this anger. We can ask the why question. All right. What else? Blew up at his wife. From the description, sound like probably was swearing at her. Kicked things around in the house. Went to the bar for a few hours. Now he sort of feels ashamed of himself. What are some other things that we could potentially pick up on from this little story here? Okay. Um, uh, let me try a different one here. So maybe some of the background. Okay. What else? Okay. It's an important question. <coughs> okay. Maybe is the anger justified or not? Are you saying how he would explain it or? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So along those lines, do you think it was appropriate for him to leave for a few hours? Not appropriate? What do you think? <laughs> so this question of should he should he leave for a little bit? Okay. 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 All right. What else? Yeah, maybe maybe still not, maybe still not the best place to go. Okay, what else? I think the main point that they're trying to make is, uh, in an average group, which I'm not saying you guys are an average group, because uh, you're getting at some of the important questions like why is he angry about this? Is he a Christian? Some of these background issues. Um, it's easy for us to latch on simply to the fact of this and not get into, yeah, there's this explosion of anger, and anger is a sin. 
But anger tends to be a response that is a coinciding of, for example, wrong thinking, wrong desires, wrong purposes of our heart. Um, I've had this discussion with my kids before. Why are you upset at dad and mom for asking you to do this thing? Well, it's usually some combination of I don't think you should tell me this right now, or I already know this, or I don't need to hear it again, something like that. And then the second part with regard to desire is, I want to do something different than the thing you've asked me to do. And then the other is, I've sort of made up my mind, this is what I'm going to do. And when all those things come together, and something puts a bump in the path for you getting to do what you want, what you've made up your mind to do, what you're convinced is the right thing according to your own thinking, this is the response that's going to happen, right? Because somebody is interrupting my goals of what I want to do. And so the, the main point of that illustration is basically we don't want to just look at the surface level issues. We want to think about what's going on in the heart. So moving on, um, spends a little bit of time on this in the chapter, but I don't want to land too long on that. Um, we already talked about that question there. Okay. Uh, so there's this idea of it being simple and this idea of it being complex, perhaps because psychological categories, starting back with Freud, are so deeply ingrained in Western culture, it is common to think of people as made up of various components. And, you know, Freud's fallen out of favor a little bit, so it tends not to be the id, the ego, and the superego as being the driving forces of what make us up as persons, but these theories of various kinds tend to continue to represent people as having various, often opposing forces operating within them. Now, that's not to say there is no conflict in our inner being, but the conflict is not between what was, uh, what was Freud's idea, right? So here's this iceberg. That's a terrible iceberg, but you get the idea. You see this part? There's all this part down here. What did he say all this part down here was? Was it things we could know or that we don't know? We don't know. So here's all this part here that I really can't do anything about. It's, it's the fact that my mother let me stay on the bottle too long. It's the fact that my dad made me wait too long to go to the bathroom when I was a kid, which, you know, Freud had weird ideas about those kinds of things. But his explanation has spilled over into modern society. So why did you do that? I don't know. Unconsciously, I blah, 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 blah. Well, if it's unconscious, how can you ever fix it? Because you don't know it. It's unconscious. Now, I will, I will grant you that we can fall into habits and patterns over, the period of over a period of time such that our response, we, we do it just sort of by default without thinking actively about it. But the reason we're at that spot is not because we can't know any of these things. It's just that we've built these powerful habits over the course of time. So that's one of the drawbacks of that, that model. So the Bible would say, instead of it being a war between what we can't know and what we can know, it's not an up and down kind of war. It would say... Um, It would say that it's a, you know, side-to-side -side kind of war, the spirit versus the flesh, both of which we are aware of at some level, right? And so that's an important distinction. It's not conscious versus unconscious. 
It's spirit versus flesh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go on. Along these same lines, Scripture uses different anthropological terms, heart, soul, spirit, mind, and more, to describe a simple, singular human experience. The biblical authors understand human experience as flowing from one unified heart. Why is this so important? Because people are unified beings. Their inner experience is not fragmented into multiple often disconnected, often opposing or conflicting forces. People's problems are not either spiritual or psychological, mental or emotional, social or moral. People, and this is a, a crucial point for us to understand, people are moral agents who conduct themselves from a singular response system for which they are responsible before their creator. We're going to talk more about the fact that this is played out in the context of the fact that we have bodies. And so our bodies affect that experience to some extent. There's also the fact that we are surrounded by people. There's also the fact that we have a relationship to God. And so there's a variety of components, but just focusing on the internal aspect of us as eternal beings in God's sight, when we do things, when we think things, when we say things, all of this, it is coming out of our hearts. So... Let's see if the Bible bears that out. We're going to look at some passages here in just a moment. Uh, but let me read a uh, quote and an illustration real fast. Thinking, feeling, and choosing are complex, dynamic heart responses, but ultimately they are different perspectives on the same singular function. That's another crucial point to understand. It's not, in this moment, I'm a thinking being, and in this moment, I'm a feeling being, and in this moment, I'm a choosing, acting, willing, being. I am all of those things all at the same time and they're all interconnected. And they all function from my heart. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go on. So let me, let me give you this illustration that he gives here. Um, imagine a father who loses his infant daughter. His most prominent experience at first may be sheer anguish. The deep sorrow reveals how he valued his daughter and the aching desire to have her back. His affections are all also at work, are at work. The dad is also interpreting the situation according to what he believes about the world. And those beliefs may be strained by the emotions he feels. He once believed the world to be a generally happy place, but this new experience shapes his prior reasoning. His thought process works in relationship with his emotions. His thinking is at work. But there is an also another important element to his experience. He'll find it difficult to maintain resolve to choose life in a new reality without his daughter. The emotional weight and the shifting beliefs will influence the way he makes decisions and choices in this new reality. The will, the volition is at work. All three dimensions of his experience are important to acknowledge in his grief since each has a powerful influence on the others. So let me, uh, let me draw you a picture real quick as we go into a little bit more of this here. So we'll keep referring back to this picture, but we'll make it a little bit more complex as we go, go on. So here's, here's our heart, right? And I know it's not shaped like that, but that's our common conception of it, right? So all right. So we've got all these things going on, but 
like this, right? You might not be able to read that from where you're sitting, but our thinking, our desiring, our, our choosing, all of those things are constantly interacting with one another. So, let's look now and see what the Bible says about the heart and see if it lines up with this picture that I've just drawn for you. So, I'm going to be looking at some passages of Scripture. If I could get a few people to read. Um, get someone to read maybe Matthew 9.4 and do that one, Paul. And then uh, someone Luke 9.47, Evan. And then uh, Mark 8.17. I will be willing to read Mark 8.17. Norma? Okay. All right, go ahead, Paul, if you would, Matthew 9.4. Okay. So what do we see from that verse? Jesus used the word thinking, right? And how does he describe that thinking, good or bad? So there's a moral component to our thinking. And where does he say that thinking is located? In our hearts. Okay, that's an important point for us to, to see there. All right, Evan, Luke 9, 47. All right. Similar kind of idea, right? And he's going to teach them something because he knows what they're thinking and he needs to, in this case, correct it. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's the passage where he's arguing about, they're arguing about who should be greatest. And, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, Mark 8, 17, please. So he talks again about their thinking. And they're arguing, we don't have any bread. So there's a problem. We're trying to solve it. We're thinking through it. But how does he describe this? Where does he say this is taking place, this thinking? In their hearts. And how does he describe their hearts? Soft or hard? Hardened. So there's an element that their thinking is clouded as part of their, their heart, their inward being. All right, uh, we can see more of this from the example of what Paul says, for example, in Romans 10 and verse 6. So let me read that one for you, and then maybe someone can read 1 Corinthians 2.9. Okay, uh, all right, let me read Romans 10.6, and then we'll do the 1 Corinthians. Who wants to do 2 Corinthians 4.6? Okay, Norma, we'll do 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and then Ephesians 4, 18. Someone willing to, Evan, you can do that one? All right, so let me see here. Romans 10 and verse 6 says this, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith, which we are preaching, and then these really familiar verses that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, what are those verses saying about what's going on in our hearts? Certain things we need to believe, right? There's things that would be wrong to believe, there's things that are right to believe, and the things that are right to believe are essential to our salvation. And so there's a there's a thinking aspect to us trusting in Jesus. All right, um, 
uh, what was the next one there? The second Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians, yeah. Okay, so this is a, a, a quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. Paul's talking about God's wisdom being a mystery. And there's things he's saying that haven't sunk down into people's hearts, but they're true because of the work that God is doing in and through Christ, the amazing work he's doing there. All right, um, 2 Corinthians 4.6. Okay, good. So what's that talking about? So we would say we're talking about the thinking part of it to some extent because it's knowledge, right? Which is something that we appreciate or understand, grasp in our thinking. And knowledge of whom? Jesus, right? And knowledge of what? God's glory in and through Jesus. All right, uh, Ephesians 4.18. Okay, so if we refuse to acknowledge God in our hearts, it's a sign of the hardness of our hearts, and it is a sign of, it's associated with God's judgment and condemnation, those sorts of things, right? All right, so, uh, so would we say so far at least that these passages are supporting the idea that there is a thinking component to our inward person? I think we would say yes, okay? Is there also a desire, value, things that we feel related to that. Listen to Matthew 5, 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? So is he saying that there are things that we want in our inward person? And in this case, it's a bad example. It would be a sinful desire connected with our hearts. And he says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If my treasure is sitting in my driveway, that's where my heart is oriented toward, right? If my treasure is a person, that's what I'm oriented toward. I'm not saying all of these are automatically bad. I'm just saying this is what Jesus is saying. What we love, what we desire, what we are oriented toward in our inward person affects the course of our lives. He says a little bit later in uh, Luke 24:32, they this is uh, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, revealing to them about himself. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So there's a, a knowledge kind of thing he's explaining their understanding what he's saying from the scriptures, primarily the Old Testament at this point, right, about himself, but there's also a, a, an emotional inward sort of response. Our hearts are burning within us. There's a thrill. There's an excitement. Their, their knowledge is provoking a desire to know more, but also a almost even a joy or, or an excitement about the things that he's revealing to them. And so again, Here's this intersection between two aspects of what we are and what we do. Many other examples we could look at. Um, just read for you a couple from Acts. 
Acts 2, verse 26. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. That's David speaking prophetically of Christ not being abandoned to the grave. And so uh, my heart was glad. So can we have an experience of joy, happiness, gladness in our hearts? Yes. Okay. Um, and I would just point out for sake of, uh, because this is going to be important later, the feelings that we feel in our hearts are tied to our knowledge of things. It's not just sort of a blind emotion, but it's tied to our knowledge of something. All right. I, I think we've probably shown the point here that there's, and I would encourage you to look up the rest of some of those passages later, but do we have a desire, uh, value, feeling component to our inward person? I think we'd say yes. Okay? All right, let's think about intentions and choices. Uh, the verse that we read earlier, if he desires to lust, there's a desire that's moving toward action. There's also a will, a choice sort of thing. Think about the way that, that James describes it. You have a desire. Uh, when each one, when he is tempted, is led away, right? And there's a point where it crosses the line from temptation to sin when I choose to act on that sinful desire, right? So, Satan said to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you will worship me. What was the point that would have crossed into sin for Jesus? He had actually followed through on it and done the worship, right? He wasn't sinning just because Satan presented the opportunity to him. He would have been sinning when he chooses in himself to act on the opportunity to behave sinfully. Um, since I'm in Acts, let me read another one for you from Acts 5, 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So what was Ananias' sin, or where did Ananias' sin begin? Okay. Okay. And was that before or after they actually got up in the church and were like, hey, look at us, we did this amazing thing, sacrificial giving for all of you? It was way before that, right? So we tend to think, and this is part of our struggle with sin, we tend to think, as long as the sin is just in my head, in my heart, inside me, it's not actually sin. That's part of what Jesus was getting at in Matthew. That's what um, Peter is getting at here. But we can, in our will, in our choosing part of us, start crossing the line into sin before it's actually expressed in action. Which is part of why, when we see this outward action over here, um, I lied. Okay? If I lie here, and somebody's like, you shouldn't lie, lying is sin. That's true. And it should be dealt with, and we should recognize that it's sin. But we need to back up a few steps and say, what was wrong here that led to the actual speaking of the lie there? 
And Peter is getting at that in this passage because he says, Satan filled your heart, Satan tempted you. Then you conceived this deed in your heart, you plotted how you would sin, and then you actually carried it out. And so uh, I think this is important to think about the process of temptation, the relationship between thinking and desire and action, all of these sorts of things. Uh, there's another one in uh, Stephen's sermon in uh, Acts 7 and verse... I have 723, but I don't think that's the right thing there. Let me just... Mm, it, the, the, the verse here is supposed to be the one about... Let's see here. There's a verse that, that basically says they, they went back to Egypt in their hearts. Okay, it's 39. 39 is the one I'm thinking of. Uh, I think 23 is... Okay, 23 is when Moses purposes to visit his brethren. So that's the choosing part of things. But verse, um, verse 37, I think, is, is, uh, or 39 is really important. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So what is repentance? Turning. What, is the, what are they doing here? They're doing the opposite of repentance, right? God says, go this way, go to the promised land. And they said, no, we want to go back to Egypt. And so in their hearts, in their thinking, in their desires, how do we know that it's in their thinking? What are some things that demonstrated the thinking of the Israelites, their sinfulness in wanting to go back to Egypt? What did they say to Moses about what he was doing? Okay, I'd, I'd say that's the desire part, but, but, but what did they say to Moses? What were they thinking about Moses? They come out to the wilderness. What do they say about Moses? You brought us here to die. Moses, you want to kill us. Ultimately, God, you want to kill us. So there's sinfulness in their thinking, right? And then what Paul was just talking about, we want these amazing things we had in Egypt. It was golden corral every day of the week, despite the fact that we were making bricks and digging in the dirt, grubbing for straw. It was not golden corral every day, but that's the way that they represented it. Okay? And, in the, and then there's this orientation of their inward person that is going this way, and now it's turning and going this way. You see how all these things are, are fitting together in the way that they are choosing to sin against God. And it can work the other way, positively speaking. And we'll talk more about that. Um, I think, let's see here. I think the Ephesians passage might demonstrate it well. Let me go there really fast. Ephesians 6.5 says... Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So when Paul was talking to Ephesians who were slaves in their society and said, how are you supposed to obey your masters? 
there had to be an intention of their hearts to do the obedience motivated by truth about who Jesus was and with a desire, it says, verse 6, not to serve men but as slaves of Christ. The desire is to please God and then that led them to obedience. So, Israelites, reverse repentance, if you will. Slaves, in Ephesians 6, 5, and 6, turning the right way toward pleasing God. All right. I think you all get the point, so we'll move on here. Why do we have these different aspects to our one combined being? It's not just we are these things, we have these things, just, just because. It's just the way that it is. There's no point to it. God designed the heart's functions for worship. Our purpose is to bring glory and honor to God. Cognitively, when people believe the testimony of God's word, they worship him. If I am convinced of the truth of something like Jesus rose from the dead, and so God will raise us from the dead, and so we have hope, What's a right response to that? Worship, right? And effectively, when people value what God values, they worship Him. If I think that God says something like, gather with my people, and I'm like, yeah, it's not really that important. I'm not going to collectively gather with God's people to worship and I'm going to be less inclined to worship him even on my own because I don't think that what God thinks is important is really all that important. And the last point, volitionally, when people submit their choices to God's will, they worship him. If I say, here's what I want to do, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to do what God wants me to do, am I then really in a good spot to say, and now I'm going to worship God? Because worship is a measure of submitting ourselves. It's a measure of being obedient to God. It's a measure of expressing our dependence on Him. And if I think I can do what I want, then I'm not expressing any measure of dependence. I'm saying, I don't need you, God, so why should I worship you? This is part of the problem with the Israelites in the wilderness. So, just a, a brief point of application, because I think it would be helpful for us to think about. In light of these truths about worship and our hearts, is there a valid place for emo expressing emotions and commitment as well as thinking in our congregational singing? This is not really the main point of the text. It's just something that occurred to me as I was going through here, just because I think sometimes we're suspicious of those two aspects of things. But, but if all these things fit together in this way, should we express emotions in our singing to God together? Yeah. What would be some emotions we could express that would be right and appropriate? Joy? Sorrow? What about anger? If it's directed towards sin, yeah? Um, what about... Um, I, I think we covered it with some of the, those main ones there. Um, love? What's that? Okay, yeah, repentance. Uh, and the, not just sorrow like I feel sorry, but sorrow like I've sinned. Okay, good. Uh, what about this idea of commitment? Should we express in some ways an idea of commitment in our singing? If this is an aspect of it? Yeah, so what would be an example of a song where we express commitment to God? Okay. 
O Lamb of God, I come. What else? Trust and obey. Okay. Lord, send me anyway. Good. So the reason that I point this out is sometimes, um, well, let's talk about the next question there. All of these aspects of our being are important, and he goes into this in a lot of detail that I'm going to skip over for sake of time, but I think you see the point. What happens, just broadly speaking, if we say this is the thing that's important? Thinking is important. Feeling is important. Choosing is important. And we kind of minimize the other two. What, what things, broadly speaking, can happen in our lives? Okay. Some kind of internal conflict. If I'm convinced that the way to, to fix things that are broken is to just think things rightly, what's the only thing I'm ever going to do? Think. Or like from my perspective, the solution is just to teach you guys more stuff so that you know more things, right? Is that usually the problem for us? I don't know enough stuff. You've been a Christian and in a good church for a long period of time. You usually know what to do. Where does the problem usually land? Okay. Knowledge puffs up, maybe. Okay, what else? Okay, and how do we... So, practically speaking, how could we address our desires? Okay, but like, with one another. How can I know what your desires are? How can I encourage you along those lines? How can we do that in the context of the church? Okay. Maybe by asking questions. Hey, what'd you do this week? Oh, you watch TV every night. How are you doing at reading your Bible? I mean, those are uncomfortable conversations, but would they be helpful? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Not just like in a rude sort of way or a nosy sort of way, but... But if we're concerned for one another, at some point we need to ask ourselves those kind of questions. Or, um, I hear you talking, of, and, and I, I talk with my kids about this. They, they tend to latch on one particular thing they're excited about. All of us do this to some extent. And that's the thing they want to talk about. The thing that we talk about the most tends to be the thing that's most important to us. So if I hear you only talking about sports, only talking about what you're going to do on the weekend, only talking about whatever, there may be an appropriate place to say, hey, what is the thing that you are desiring and loving the most at this point in your life? And, and, and that's a, an opportunity for us to think through that. Um, and then the last one is like actions. So if someone does something and we say, you know what? That action, something seems off about that. Talking with that person about that action coming alongside that person. Sometimes those things don't come up in the context of like Sunday morning. So then that means sometimes we've got to be spending time with each other outside of Sunday morning and interacting with each other in different contexts. I think particularly that's a responsibility on my part, which is something I'm, I'm trying to work on doing more 
consistently, now that some of the things we've been doing with Maggie are, are, are toning down a little bit, but, but, you know, see how things are going for you at your house, at your work, with your family, all of those sorts of things. Not to be nosy, not to be difficult, but just because ideally a sermon is affecting what we think, what we love, and what we're purposing to do. But the actual demonstration of whether it's accomplishing those goals kind of happens during the week. Same thing with some of these things. There's things that come up in times of fellowship or just in one-on-one conversations that would never come up in this kind of a setting. And so uh, my point in saying all these things is just to say this. We should not overemphasize one aspect of who we are, ignoring all the others, because God wants to transform not just our thinking, not just our desires, not just our habits, but all of who we are. And then when it comes to actually helping one another, we need to have that same sort of mindset. So let's go back briefly to the angry husband earlier in the chapter. What is it possible, and we can't assume we know what people are thinking, but what is a possibility of something that he's thinking? Okay. So I have an excuse to vent my anger because it's not going my way. Okay? Is that a true statement according to the Bible? What, what would be a truth that we could replace that false belief with? Okay. Or even just immediately against his idea of, of nothing ever goes right. God is a God who gives good gifts, right? Specifically to his people, so that's where we could tie in the sin aspect. But God is a God who gives good gifts. So if I say nothing ever goes right, what am I saying about the character of God? I mean, that's something we can help him think through. What about his desires? If he blows up at his wife, and, and what is one of many possible things he could be wanting that are leading to that kind of a response? Okay. She talked to him, and he wanted to be left alone. Or he came in the door, and he wanted supper ready, and he's like, why didn't you do this? You know, whatever. Uh, but he needs to deal with his desires. What should his desire be in connection with his wife? What's a really good passage we could help him think about? Love your wives. As Christ loved the church. Does Christ love the church even if dinner's not on time, even if we don't do the things that he wants us to do? Yeah. Okay. And then the last thing, what is the, the, the issue with his choices? Okay. Is there, is it, there's different expressions of anger. One is I'm going to sit there and sulk. The other is I'm going to explode in this cloud of rage. Both of those are wrong responses. Instead of expressing his anger this way, kicking the wall, screaming profanities, all these sorts of things, what should he use the circumstance to do? Deal with some of these problems that are leading to his frustration. Okay, that's another very, very good thing too, yeah. Pray about it, ask God to help you calm down, but then use that energy that's stirred up inside you to do something good instead of something destructive, I mean, just as an example. So, uh, we'll wrap up there for today, but the, the main points of this chapter, we have all of these aspects of who we are, but they're all flowing out of a one heart. God wants to transform all of these aspects of who we are, so we don't latch onto just one of them, but we deal with all of them by God's grace according to the principles of His Word. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that you'd help us as we come to the morning service to be encouraged from your word, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would follow you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.